Welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today, Samuel Moyne, will talk about how we can get our wretched Supreme Court under democratic control, and Deepak Bhargava will talk about the history of immigration policy in the U.S. and what a more humane regime than the present one might look like. As I say in my opening question to Samuel Moyne, the Supreme Court has long struck me as, with the exception of the Warren years, and Moyne challenges me on even this, a reactionary ruling class institution that has stood against democracy and egalitarian social policy for almost all of U.S. history. That has become obvious with Trump's three hard appointments to the court, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, but to true connoisseurs of Supreme Court hatred, people who've come around to the position only because of this odious trio are latecomers. What, if anything, can be done about it? There's no better candidate to answer that question than Samuel Moyne, who teaches law and history at Yale. Moyne has a new article in the California Law Review, co-written with Ryan Dorfler of the University of Chicago, called Democratizing the Supreme Court. It's an exhaustive and rigorous look at various strategies for reigning in this profoundly anti-democratic institution. To take one example, if we indulge in the fantasy of this awful Congress, passing a Green New Deal, large portions of it would almost certainly be struck down because it infringed on the rights of capitalists to make vast pots of money by wrecking nature. Doing anything decent requires quashing the power of the Supreme Court. Here's Samuel Moyne with more. In my crude Marxist view of the world, um, the uh, Supreme Court has, with the exception of perhaps of the Warren years, been largely a reactionary ruling class institution that has stood against democracy and egalitarian social policy. Is that too harsh a judgment? I would extend it to the Warren years because what were the conditions under which it seemed to stop siding with the powerful and wealthy? Well, it was a Cold War in which liberal elites were scared of the heat they were taking for the apartheid that was still formally in place in this country. That's sort of unfair because the court went beyond Brown v. Board and did some things in criminal procedure and so forth that have made some kind of difference. But even those innovations have proved superficial with time. The whole carceral state was built and police violence really wasn't about the Warren Court's contributions, like interpreting the criminal procedure, like the right to have an attorney represent you much later in the process if you survive. So I wouldn't want to leave the Warren Court out of like a very serious interrogation of what the Supreme Court's meant for progress in U.S. history. So how did we get to this point? It's not mentioned in the Constitution, but how did we get to this uh, world where the Supreme Court can invalidate legislation passed by legitimate democratic procedures? The best answer, I think, would, would have to look a little bit at the early 19th century and then much harder at the later 19th and early 20th centuries and then the coming of the Cold War. So let's just review those just really quick. You know that, that traditionally judicial supremacy is traced to Marbury v. Madison, which is decided by John Marshall, who's really put in power as part of a kind of federalist coup after Thomas Jefferson gets elected in, in 1800, representing the almost populist force in American politics. And that was a big deal because Jefferson understood that when elites think they're about to lose power or actually lose power, they can turn to an, a judiciary that will do their work even when they can't win elections. Jefferson says that openly. And yet, you know, Marbury didn't have that much significance and wasn't even considered all that central a case for, for many decades. It's true that the Supreme Court propped up slavery before white supremacy on its own. But so did other elites in the country before the coming of abolitionists and the, the rise of the Republican Party. So I think we should look most closely at that second moment, the late 19th century, when basically business elites capture the Supreme Court and postpone social legislation for a half century. 
not to mention help shred advances made during Reconstruction to protect African-Americans freed from slavery. That's called Lochnerism by con law professors when the Supreme Court basically did protect minorities from, the, from majorities, but it was powerful and wealthy minorities. That's really the, the crucible of, of left and socialist skepticism about the Supreme Court. And we have to go back to that era because that's when all the best ideas about what the Supreme Court is and what we can do to chasten it come from, like the resistance against the Lochner era court. Finally, I think we should mention World War II and the Cold War because Lochner was overthrown when FDR was elected repeatedly with massive majorities and he threatened the court. We can get into that if you want with court packing in 1937. And the court agreed never to do that again. And yet within a few years, it begins intervening again, now in the name of rights, not the right of freedom of contract, which had been the right at stake in Lochner, even though it's not in the Constitution, but in the Bill of Rights and in other parts of the Constitution. And that matters because it reestablishes the authority that the Supreme Court had arrogated to itself, either in Marbury or the late 19th century, you decide. And that's fateful because when conservatives fight back against the Warren Court, they're trying to get back the power that the World War II era and Cold War era justices had seized. And they've been successful. And so now we're looking at decades of conservative rule from the high court with a a real challenge about how to circumvent it uh, once it's seen as the kind of reactionary force that it is. There's a species of popular liberal liberal commentary on on the court uh, that sees, this may be changing now, but had seen the right turn on the Supreme Court as a departure. Uh, but it really is just a return to uh, classical history of what the Supreme Court has been all about for most of American history, right? Basically, yeah. So I, I think if we don't oversell the Warren Court, we say, okay, that did depart, but it departed in a certain way. You had some liberals and, and even conservatives in the sense of Republicans like Earl Warren itself agreeing to do hard work that the Democratic Party couldn't do before the civil rights revolution, the Democratic Party in power for most of that long era after FDR has the problem that it's dependent on the Southern Democrats who block civil rights. And in this Cold War situation where the Soviets are scary because they denounce American racism, and rightly so, the elites on the Supreme Court offer to take one for the team. And of course, that has big consequences because it creates the current alignment of parties as civil rights happens and the Southern Democrats become Republicans and, and so forth. And <laughs> now we have Joe Manchin. <laughs> absolutely. And, and you know, the kind of moderate Republicans like Earl Warren become something of a distant memory. And yet in this whole era, the Supreme Court kind of doesn't get that far. It dismantles apartheid formally. But aside from a certain diversification of American elites, which has occurred, both along racial and gender lines, you still have entrenched class hierarchy. And the court never faces that. It never faces the intersection of gender and race with class, which is is really the source of the fundamental disempowerment of most of the worst victims, not just in U.S. history, but today. Liberals didn't get that much done in the Warren Court era. And then they begin to get scared because what they do get done causes backlash and they begin to lose elections more and more. And eventually Ronald Reagan succeeds in creating a whole new framework for American government and affecting all the assumptions of American governance. And not least, the right begins to take over the court and liberals get nostalgic. I like to say they become sort of like Victorians who knew God was dead, but wish that they could get him back. They just get sad and complain about losing the modest power to make policy for liberal causes they'd enjoyed on the court. I think it would have been better if they'd reflected on why they didn't get very far, even at the height of liberal judicial power, because it would have required them to go out and win elections with a popular program that addressed 
class and the intersections of gender and race with class, but to date, they haven't really done so. And now it's a crisis because the Republicans have consolidated their control of the court and are going to do and continue to do grievous harm uh, from there. There's a strain in liberal thought that's really kind of anti-democratic, afraid of the mob. They think they're all reactionaries and racists. And so there's a preference for uh, litigation and judicial uh, approaches to problems because they like elite expert opinion. The right right likes the judiciary now because they control it and just like it for pure power reasons. But the the, the Democrats seem to have this persistent, they make this persistent appeal to norms that the Republicans have made it clear they have no respect for and haven't had any respect for it since the Gingrich years. So there's this real fundamental um, asymmetry in in, uh, the approach to politics. I completely agree with that. It's all part of that Cold War picture that Democrats and liberals ended up after the kind of magical years of Roosevelt's uh, presidency, when they understood the importance of mobilization and bringing the common man, not just into their party, but activating people mobilizationally, they, they really got scared of democracy. It's kind of amazing. I'm actually writing about this. If you look back at this late 19th century moment I mentioned, Everyone for and against Supreme Court power nakedly calls it anti-democratic. For conservatives, that's a good thing. And for the progressives, it's what should require us to put the Supreme Court in check. After World War II, liberals increasingly, let's say, engage in a kind of fiction that actually democracy requires constraint and rule by judges that we really don't have it until judges have guaranteed that the political process is fair and guaranteed individual rights. And so they succeed in convincing themselves that they're the real Democrats, when in fact, they're actually empowering majority rule on the Supreme Court, uh, making it completely depend on who gets up there and who controls the court. Liberals, I think, out of their anti-democratic fears and out of their the rationalizations that judges would serve democracy by contradicting majorities got us to the present. I hope we think hard about that mistake. You're totally right that Republicans, even though they don't have a majority themselves, are benefited by constitutional arrangements that give minorities, which Republicans represent, a lot more power than they should have. And Republicans have been relentless in turning not just to the court, but also to rabble-rousing techniques of accumulating power. And the Democrats haven't fought fire with fire. And so it's really a sad state of affairs that is on them as much as on their enemies. I'm speaking with the law professor and historian Samuel Moyne. Now, what to do about this? There's always the uh, the shadow of uh, Roosevelt's uh, court packing episode, which is, I think, widely, or at least until recently, been widely condemned as, as something underhanded, dishonest about it. Was it that, and was it a success or a failure? How do we? How should we judge that now? It's fascinating to see how the same episode is read and reread as political events take us to new places. It is true that. It was unpopular at the time and seen as like radioactive for decades after. Now, if we go back in real time, we learned that actually it had a lot more support than its reputation might suggest. And that had it not been for the heart attack of the Senate majority leader the day before the the vote, um, it might well have gone the other way. The truth is, though, that Roosevelt got what he wanted. It turned out that just the proposal was credible enough a threat to the justices on the Supreme Court that he kind of got court packing indirectly. First, he got them to change their mind and abandon Lochner and abandon economic liberalism and let the Wagner Act survive when they had condemned earlier legislation like the National Industrial Recovery Act. But then more important, they all retired. And uh, Roosevelt got to, got to appoint a lot of new justices. So it may be true that the number never exceeded nine, but essentially Roosevelt was able to take over the court, including change the personnel to suit him. 
now there's the, the first impulse, I think, reasonably given the way Mitch McConnell denied Obama's pick, the, the current attorney general, Merrick Garland, even a hearing when he was nominated to replace Antonin Scalia. And then more gallingly for some, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and Amy Coney Barrett was nominated in the closing weeks of a presidential campaign to replace her. Liberals say, well, let's rehabilitate court packing. Among them, it is the most popular proposal because they know about it. And it does have the most traction. And the idea basically is to either do what FDR did or go further and actually get court packing done, add some new justices and take over the court. And it's unambiguously legal, right? Because Congress has the power to regulate. I wouldn't say unambiguously because humorously having talked about norms for four years under Donald Trump and discovering all kinds of constraints when Trump was disappointing them by not openly breaking the law as often as they liked. Democrats then found that norms could also be cited against their new ideas. And court packing is not new, but a lot of people said, look, the very fact that court packing failed in the 30s and that the court's complement hasn't been raised for more than 100 years means there's a constitutional norm forbidding it. I think it's pretty clear, let's put it over 90% that it's legal. If you say it's unambiguously legal, that's 100%. <laughs> um, stretching. And, and, and the question is who decides? But I would say, and there's been a lot of um, controversy about this in that Supreme Court commission that Joe Biden set up, that of all the possible remedies, court packing is the most unambiguously legal the most available to Congress to get done without fear of being blocked by the Supreme Court itself. Of course, FDR had uh, enormous popular approval and uh, his party controlled both houses of Congress by a considerable margin. Uh, Things are rather different now. That's right. I mean, so it's kind of a fantasy in the sense that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are not only are they not touching the filibuster, they would never, ever go for court packing. And actually, you might find that many more centrist Democrats would join them, even though it's clearly legal, um, or more or less clearly legal, it doesn't seem like it's in, it's likely to be voted through. Now, the overruling of Roe v. Wade, which I would say is likely or not in June or July, could change the equation. As you know, like my own personal view is that court packing is is the wrong move, not just because it's not viable now, but because it, I think it would be a kind of mistake in principle and practice. But there's no denying that there's a lot of energy behind it, and we have to do something about the Supreme Court, and, and no one should take it off the table. Okay, your article uh, runs through several other op- options for um, getting this court under control. So let's talk about a few of those. The idea of a panel system, a lottery among federal judges, what's that like? So let's go back because one of my concerns about core packing is kind of learning the lesson of FDR that he tried what we call a personnel remedy, like thinking in terms of who's on the court, how long they stay, how they get there, whether you can add new people, et cetera. And the fact is that all of those options are basically about getting the right people up to wield the same amount of power the court had before. And again, as I mentioned before, in just a few years after the Supreme Court relented in 1937 and let the New Deal survive, they began interfering with democracy again, literally during World War II. And so we should remember that whatever we do in messing around with who's on the court, if we don't ultimately think about the power whoever's on the court enjoys, I think we'll be making a mistake. So a panel system would be to say, I mean, there's so many different versions of it. If we look abroad, we find that these kinds of courts, which in in general don't enjoy anything like the same power as the Supreme Court, also have many more members. And just as at the level of our appeals court, you get three judges out of a lot and you never get the whole group, you could imagine expanding the number of Supreme Court justices to 50 or 100 
and then just having groups of judges decide each case. So it's never just nine people. Or you could imagine having a new process for choosing the the justices, whether the number remains at nine or is, is increased. For example, some places around the world use merit selection to take it at least a little bit out of the hands of, of politicians. I'm not a big fan of that idea because I think that like experts are politicized, you know, and then it would just mean that our fate's in the hands of law professors, which would actually make things worse. So, you know, my, my take is that we should definitely think about other ways of choosing our justices and other systems of changing the personnel. But ultimately, we need to look at a, a whole different set of remedies, which like attacks the, the authority of the court itself. That you brought up a point, which I think is worth developing. There's a strand of, of opinion that would say that we need to get politics out of the selection of justices. We need a much more professional, non-ideological approach. That seems like nonsense to me. I mean, but uh, w what do you think of that? No, I'm with you. Um, I mean, what that really means is centrism. And when people say that they want expertise that's beyond politics, what they mean is people who learn in law school to pretend they're not doing politics and do it anyway. What that would in general mean when people talk about restoring the legitimacy of the Supreme Court or balancing the bench by having Republicans appoint some centrists and Democrats some centrists is they really just want centrist policy. But we don't. And most of all, we don't want centrist policy like doing nothing on the environment, leaving white supremacy basically intact to be represented as apolitical because it's a, it's a political choice. The most important thing is repudiate the idea that we could in principle get a Supreme Court that's beyond politics. Now, the justices are out in force. Stephen Breyer just wrote a pamphlet that says, please remember that we're not politicians. His opposite numbers, Amy Coney Barrett and Clarence Thomas, came out within weeks saying the same things. Don't attack the Supreme Court because we're not political agents. But then why do we organize democracy as a battle to the death to decide which team gets to choose the justices? Of course, it's political. At worst, depoliticization proposals are hiding the ball. At best, they're kind of pretending that centrist policy isn't politics, which it most definitely is. Now, there are a couple of other personnel uh, options uh, to manipulate the court. One, partisan balance, which I guess would be what, like the NLRB, where you have three Democrats and two Republicans or something, and then also term limits. Yeah, exactly. So I mentioned the kind of one version of the balance proposal, which is basically to say, okay, the president has a role, but we'd rather when there are openings or if we, if we create new seats, have like both sides get to choose some and maybe the more popular party, if it wins the presidency, could choose the deciding justice. We wouldn't get a runaway court where the Democrats, like in the last 30 years, have won half the presidential elections, but the Republicans have gotten 80% of the judicial appointments just because people die and retire in unpredictable. Yeah, is that just accidents of the electoral calendar and the actuarial tables, or was there some... Completely. So, I mean, if we look back, Jimmy Carter just was really unlucky, and George W. Bush and Barack Obama served the same number of years, and Bush got more justices. Trump most glaringly served for half as much time and got three justices more than either of his two predecessors. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the so-called notorious RBG, who, who I think is, ought to be notorious for a new reason, for making a bet on her own longevity and saddling us with paying the other side its winnings. But it, it's basically down to like, fortuity. People die and retire on their own schedules. Now, the hilarious thing is that Breyer won't retire. And he says, look, you don't want me to retire under a Democrat because that will make me look like a partisan hack. But then, <laughs> but then if he stays, you know, it's an effectively giving another seat to the Republicans. So in fairness, the, the term limit idea is more broadly accepted. And actually, this commission I mentioned that Joe Biden appointed is most favorable towards it. It would do a lot of good. I don't think it would do enough good, but it, it might save us, especially if we designed it a certain way. 
from the kind of accident of history problem. That said, just as court packing is the the least controversially legal, it seems like term limitation is the most clearly unconstitutional because of all the remedies, the Constitution actually says something about this and guarantees federal judges life tenure. People are trying to figure out, would we really have to pass an amendment to get around that constitutional writ or, or is there some other way we can proceed? My basic takeaway would be that it's worth trying for, but it's kind of like pushing chairs around the deck of the Titanic. It's not enough and it, it won't make a difference soon enough, given that almost all the proposals are prospective and leave all of the current nine justices in power until they die or retire. I'm speaking with the law professor and historian Samuel Moyne. I'm always skeptical of reforms that are focused on personnel rather than structures. Yeah, me too. There's no durability necessarily, but also um, the structures shape the personnel. You get on the bench and you start thinking differently from when you arrived. That's absolutely true. And, And honestly, that's been a complaint of conservatives for years that Anthony Kennedy got up there and then he wanted to hobnob with too many elites and ended up throwing away the conservative agenda he was supposed to advance. I think the argument cuts the other way that, you know, it's true that the justices are socialized. The honest truth that people aren't debating in this space is that across party lines, you know, the Democrat appointees and the Republican ones, you've got the most business-friendly court in a century. Those decisions don't get a lot of attention compared to abortion and affirmative action and so on, but they have huge implications for our national life, for letting the rich get richer. We need to challenge the ability of unelected judges to move, move the country without forcing the proponents of these policies with organizing electoral majorities and having public debates. My basic trouble with the Supreme Court is whenever it makes a decision, it's choosing policy, but it's pretending it was already decided in the law, or worse, a 200-year-old constitution. And since that's a lie, you know, our best course is to get those decisions out of their hands so that even if we lose, we're forced to debate them in public as what they actually are, which is political decisions, policy choices to move the country in one direction for another. And I'd love the Republicans to have to justify class rule openly in order to get the kinds of laws passed that would take this, the country in the direction the Supreme Court has. There's always this great trade during the um, confirmation hearings where we pretend that these are not political decisions. And so we try to find some personal flaw in the nominee. So the, this was really grotesque in the case of Kavanaugh, who is a repulsive character, no question about it. But um, he's an appalling person politically. And as you say, you know, it applies to Democrats, too, where you get stealth candidates who haven't done much on purpose. And then there's like a charade, because we're not allowed to ask them, well, what do you believe? What's the direction in which you're going to use your immense power to take the country? because we're indulging in the fiction that they're just going to interpret the law as if that were an objective thing. And in fact, we ought to focus the, if we keep the confirmation process remotely the way it is on figuring out, like, what are your politics? Because let's be honest that you're a politician in robes and not someone whom we should pretend is an umpire, as Chief Justice John Roberts famously said in his confirmation hearing. So once we give up the talk about the neutrality of jurists, even though we've, again, we've gone to war to the death to decide which jurists get on the bench, um, I think we'll be doing something just for honesty's sake, as well as for the sake of public discussion about what kind of American future to choose. And then turning to the more structural reforms, there's jurisdiction stripping or disempowering reforms, as you call them. What are those? What would those look like? So the general category that we we contrast to personnel reforms that mess with who's up there, how long they stay, et cetera, are these so-called disempowering reforms. And the basic idea is what can we do to transfer power from the judiciary to the legislature? And one example of that is jurisdiction stripping. So You could imagine abortion rights protected by 
a, a continued war to keep the justices sticking to Roe v. Wade, an interpretation of the 14th Amendment or the privacy right in the Constitution generally. Or you could imagine Congress passing a federal abortion rights statute since it's empowered to do so. The 14th Amendment was actually principally a directive to Congress to protect civil rights. And the 14th Amendment, Section 5, says Congress should pass laws to protect these rights and define them in the first place. So if Congress ever stepped up, and in fairness, they have done more to protect rights than the Warren Court ever did, think of the Voting Rights Act. <laughs> Undone by the Supreme Court, yes. Exactly. Let's, let's just imagine that the Democrats decided to pass an ab a federal abortion rights statute. It could add to that statute a command that the judiciary not mess with it, not invalidate it. And that's called jurisdiction stripping. So we've been talking about the Supreme Court, but what about lower federal courts? Would they be able to do the same there? There's a debate about that. And you could arrange the jurisdiction stripping in lots of different ways, but you could either say no court can consider the constitutionality of this particular statute, or you could say, look, lower courts can issue an injunction against the application of the statute, but ultimately the Supreme Court has to take some view about it. And our other proposal is a supermajority rule. And imagine that the Supreme Court just couldn't make up its mind because it couldn't get enough justices. It might get five, but it couldn't get seven or nine. And in that case, the stays would be lifted. Um, so, you know, you can organize these disempowerment remedies in lots of different ways. If you think back, you know, if you don't like the abortion rights statute example, you could think about Obamacare. Well, from the day it was passed, it was challenged. And there have been three major cases. And, you know, it survived each time barely. But the first round, the Supreme Court invalidated a very big part of the law, the Medicaid expansion, which basically punished Blacks in the South and kept the federal government from extending health care to some of the most impoverished Americans. And you could imagine the Congress, when it passed Obamacare, just protected it from the courts. And we wouldn't have had to go through this rigmarole of like defending the law three times, having a major national debate each time, and hoping and praying the court wouldn't invalidate it. Now, of course, such a provision would be challenged, right? And then would the Supreme Court review it? All of this is open to challenge. So if we do nothing because we think that the Supreme Court might not let us keep it in check, that's a recipe for failure. Now, you might argue in response that, well, we should do the one they're least likely to, to stop in its tracks, and that would be court packing. But maybe you think court packing is not going to happen. And moreover, court packing just means that we're going to go to war even more over who gets on the seats. There are just now more of them. So the point of these disempowerment remedies is to kind of lower the temperature, because some of these remedies don't directly serve the Democrats. They, they basically operate to transfer power to the legislature, whoever controls it. And that makes American politics more honest, because it means that you have to win the one game of convincing your fellow citizens that your policies are the better ones and enact them through the legislature. And I honestly think that's, you know, we talked about the fear of democracy in this country, but disempowering the court is absolutely necessary if we want to get democracy back. And so these remedies like jurisdiction stripping and especially the supermajority rule are the ones I personally favor. There's a last one worth mentioning, which is legislative override, which would allow the legislature to just say it respectfully disagrees with the Supreme Court's conclusions. I, and that would have presumably legal force or just a, it, well, an so expression it's not, of disapproval? It's, it exists in some countries and judicial finality is not in the constitution. It would be one of these disempowering remedies that the legislature could try and get a popular backing for its choice and then dare the Supreme Court to find otherwise. Because nowhere in the constitution does it say who has the final word on whether laws are constitutional. In fact, it doesn't say that the Supreme Court gets to invalidate laws in the first place. 
And yet, since it's taken that power, there's no reason for the legislature not to uh, try to take it back. Which of these approaches, you said a little bit about this, but I'd like you to say more, which of these approaches do you think is the most politically feasible, but also the most legally bulletproof? Right now, court packing is best known and most popular. I'm skeptical that a coalition can be put together to push it through. And I think a lot of people rightly worry that if the Democrats do it, even especially with a slim majority in a divided country, the Republicans will come back and do it uh, themselves. And there are nightmare scenarios of ending up with like hundreds of justices. And that has happened in Poland and not in a good way. So my sense is that we could get a bigger and better coalition for these disempowering reforms, including some on the right who have been condemning the Supreme Court for generations. But now that it's their Supreme Court, they're not doing it anymore. Uh, That's true. But some are honest and some have said, look, you know, we stole this socialist ideas since all of these disempowerment remedies came up in that Lochner era when socialists proposed them. Conservatives took control of those kinds of proposals in response to the civil rights revolution. And some of them say, look, we would be better off as Americans if we came to a kind of grand consensus that we don't want either liberals or conservatives to rule through the Supreme Court. We should just have democracy instead. That serves no one except the people as a whole and forces us to play the game of democracy rather than the game of judicial selection. It's probably utopian to think that that kind of grand bargain is in the offing, but there's going to be a a big debate when and if Roe v. Wade is overruled, what the Democrats should do. The most likely scenario is that they'll try and fail to pack the court to try to get Roe back. My sense is that they should, in a way, accept the gift of the mobilization that this decision will cause and think creatively about how to avoid the judicialization of our politics, of which Roe is a great example, when we could follow the examples of the Civil Rights Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act and realize that our rights to be serious and to stay come from popular support and from congressional action. Roe wouldn't be in such parlous shape had it not been for decades of Democrats relying on litigation and judicial uh, decisions rather than organizing some kind of popular movement and uh, winning elections around it. That's right. Again, we need to steal the conservative page, which is when the time is right, they have been very clear that if you don't like a judicial decision, you raise hell in the streets, you organize an electoral coalition in response. And Democrats have not done that. They will have an opportunity. And even if Roe doesn't fall, we're already dealing with radioactive decisions each and every year for decades now, with many more to come now that conservatives do control the Supreme Court. So at any time, there can be this reorientation amongst liberals and progressives to see um, the court not as their friend, but as something they need to control for the sake of of a democratic future. And they'll have to get over their fear of the mob. That was Samuel Moyne, who holds a dual appointment in history and law at Yale. His article on democratizing the Supreme Court, co-written with Ryan Dorfler, is in the California Law Review, freely available on the web. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. Some of Geld, originally performed by the German electronic band Melodia, this in a freshly released remix from Monica Werkstatt. Our faith is our money, say the lyrics. This one's going out to the Supreme Court. Next, immigration. 
Time constraints forced me to cut this interview in half from its original length, which I certainly don't mean as a sign of disregard for the issue or the interviewee. Along with Ruth Milkman and Penny Lewis, Deepak Bhargava is one of three editors of a collection, Immigration Matters, Movements, Visions, and Strategies for a Progressive Future, just out from the new press. Contributors review the history of U.S. immigration policy, the demographics of the immigrant population, their contributions to American life, and what a better policy might look like. Deepak Bhargava is a distinguished lecturer at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, City University of New York. Deepak Bhargava. Let's start with some of the things that nasty people say about immigrants. They steal our jobs, and they're a big drain of the Treasury. What's your response to that? Taken in as a whole, we call it the immigrant threat narrative. And it turns out that as a matter of fact, it's untrue. The sequence here is employers degrade jobs, break unions, abuse uh, native-born workers, who then leave the industries, and then immigrant workers come in. So native-born workers have plenty of reason to be angry about what's happened the last 50 years in this country, but that anger is properly directed towards employers, not to immigrants. And then the fiscal impact question is very interesting. It is true that there can be short-term significant costs to integrating new immigrants, But the studies show that in the long term, particularly in societies like ours that are aging, that immigrants have a net positive fiscal impact. And there was a big econometric study that was done of Europe. And basically, it showed that countries that accepted more migrants grew more on a per capita basis and had better fiscal balance sheets. So the evidence is against the immigrant threat narrative, which doesn't mean it doesn't have plenty of potency. Okay, let's go back in history a bit. The long sweep of American immigration policy, starting in the 19th century, what, what, you know, in broad terms did it look like? American history has basically been characterized by periods of extraordinary welcoming. At, at its best, the country has actually been the most welcoming country on earth for immigrants and refugees, coupled with periods of intense restriction and nativist backlash. And we basically go through waves of one and waves of the other. So the late 19th century was a pivotal period when the Chinese Exclusion Acts were passed and there was a kind of nativist fervor that eventually crested in the early part of the 20th century with very restrictive immigration laws that dramatically reduced immigration to the United States. That was then the history from the 20s to 1965, where we had very low levels of immigration. And then in 1965, as part of the Civil Rights Revolution, the Immigration and Nationality Act, somewhat unintentionally, or really very unintentionally, opened the doors to immigration from Asia, Latin America, and Africa. And it's been a huge driver of the demographic change that the country is undergoing. Fast forward to the Trump years, and really the post-9-11 years, I would say, and we've been in a kind of long cycle of, of nativist backlash. In the early part of the 19th century, basically any white person could walk into the country without many questions to ask, right? That's right. The Border Patrol is a relatively modern invention. It has not always existed. Yes, we sort of assume these things are eternal, but they are um, relatively recent historical creations. What exactly happened during the Trump years? How severe was the crackdown uh, and uh, how was it prosecuted? If you looked at it from the standpoint of efficacy as opposed to morality, you'd have to say Trump achieved a substantial part of his goal. So by the end of his term, net new migration to the United States was virtually zero, with the kind of last step being the use of COVID as a pretext mechanism to essentially seal our borders to to migrants and refugees. Towards the end of his term, he created an office of denaturalization which was basically designed to try and take citizenship away from people who had naturalized. Now, this never really got off the ground completely, but it was established. And so you could see the the kind of next step was to actually reduce the immigrant population through even more draconian means. The big mechanisms here were to reduce refugee numbers to the lowest level in decades, to um, make immigration incredibly hard and complicated by increasing fees, by making the tests incredibly complicated, by creating lots of red tape. So there are years and years delays now for people. And then, of course, there's really the effect of enforcement. And that was both indiscriminate raids, workplace raids, home raids, and also at the border, a really draconian crackdown. I think in some ways, the most chilling way that Trump 
discourage migration, though, was through sort of a rhetoric of, of hatred and violence. There were increasing numbers of crimes, murders of immigrants, especially in the early part of Trump's term. That had the effect of really sending a pretty chilling signal to prospective migrants about the desirability of coming to the United States. So through all these mechanisms, rhetoric, policy, enforcement, it was a, um, a thoroughgoing uh, crackdown on migration. Okay, so now let's pivot to what is to be done, that old challenging question. There's a chapter in the book that say that says abolishing ICE is not enough. What about ICE? What about immigration enforcement? What kind of regime should we look forward to? The images we saw at the border of Haitian migrants being chased on horseback and being whipped were shocking to much of the American public, but it actually speaks to the origins of Customs and Border Patrol and immigration enforcement in very old systems of the slave patrol. That is, in fact, the origins. Many of the first workers in the Customs Border Patrol were from the Ku Klux Klan. The immigration enforcement system is a vast, sprawling bureaucracy that has grown beyond all reason and recognition. And one of the contributors in our books makes, makes a very provocative argument that the laws we choose to enforce, it's a statement of our values. I did an analysis with a, a colleague at Columbia and shows if you look at how much we spend to enforce laws against undocumented farm workers or essential workers and compare that to how much we spend to enforce worker health and safety or the minimum wage or anti-discrimination laws or fair housing laws. It's a shocking disparity that goes through Democratic and Republican administrations on the order of 30, 50, 80, 100 to 1. So the first step is to dramatically reduce funding for immigration enforcement. A second step is to reorient the system away from focusing on deporting people into finding means for people to stay. Many people, in fact, have some equities that in a more sane system, we'd work with them to figure out how, if possible, they can stay. Thirdly, in, in many forms of law, we have intermediate sanctions. It's not you jaywalk and you get the death penalty. An immigration violation can result in deportation. There are no intermediate sanctions at all. So the article makes this case for really a radical rethink of the system and a radical reduction in how much money we spend on immigration enforcement, which that money could be spent in many, many better ways. The concluding chapter of the book is yours, uh, in which you uh, propose making the U.S. the most welcoming country in the world to immigrants. Could you just lay out what your vision is of what our immigration policy should be? Yeah, sure. So I propose a, a new framework, a Statue of Liberty plan for the 21st century. And the idea is that the United States should welcome millions and millions of people over the next decade. Um, for a long time, we've been focused on, and we should be, on providing a path to citizenship for the 11 million undocumented immigrants who are here. But now the question is really going to be intense about how many people and under what conditions do we admit immigrants in the future? And my argument is that a whole series of factors, the aging of America, climate change, which is driving migration from the global south, from Latin America, from the Caribbean, and that's going to increase year after year in waves, that these factors really are going to call on us for both moral, economic, humanitarian reasons to build a kind of movement and a policy for vastly expanded immigration. Now, this may seem counterintuitive, and it is outside the discourse of what most politicians would talk about today. But it's interesting, one of the boomerang effects of Trump's policies is that for the first time in 50 years in the Gallup polls after he left office, more Americans support increasing admissions than decreasing admissions. It's a, it's a dramatic and interesting turnaround. So I'm hopeful that we're at the beginning of a, a wave of pro-immigrant policy and sentiment in the country. If we're going to avoid those images at the border that were so deplorable, we're going to need to welcome many, many more people who, who need refuge and uh, who can contribute to this country. I would have to say that the idea of open borders is emotionally appealing to me. And I have a hard time thinking up any kind of principled uh, objection to open borders. So I can understand there are practical problems associated with it. That is not a position that most of the contributors to the book take. Um, so what is your idea of just how porous should our borders be? There may be a time in the far future when we really think of governance in a way that is, does not involve the nation state. 
that involves more international governance, more local governance, where there's a, a totally free flow of people. But as long as we have the nation state, some form of regulated movement across borders kind of goes with the idea of the nation state. My view is that instead of open borders, what we should advocate for is a very generous and open immigration policy that allows for millions of people to come, but also gives people who have some doubt or reservation a sense that there is some control, some order, some rationale in the system. And I think that's the balance that a really progressive at the edge of the discourse policy can strike. That can be a winning politics. There can be a movement for it. So that's why I at least support that approach rather than open borders, which I think for the foreseeable future is a a non-starter in American politics. Politically, you say that uh, there's going to have to be some sort of united front, which means swallowing differences and just uniting to get the best we can under the circumstances. Uh, and you say the left has to make some compromises. Uh, what, what sort do you have in mind? Well, I'd say, for example, I think we should welcome people to the United States based on their humanity, not just because they produce widgets or we need this number of this kind of worker or that this kind of other worker. However, there will be plenty of people who will say, well, the country is aging rapidly. We need workers in these professions. So yes, we need immigrants, but I want them for economic reasons. You want them because you think it's the right thing to do. If you end up in the same place in terms of a more welcoming policy, I think that's a place where liberals and leftists can functionally agree, even if they don't agree on the reasons why more migration is, is desirable. That was Deepak Bargava, co-editor, along with Ruth Milkman and Penny Lewis, of Immigration Matters, just out from the new press. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, some of Dmitry Shostakovich's Fugue Number no. 7, one of my favorite things in the world. This and a new recording by the Russian-German pianist Igor Levitt. Till next week, bye. <laughs>